HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic near and dear to my heart, and that is hemp cultivation in this country. Hemp is a plant that has an enormous opportunity to benefit the American agricultural system in myriad ways, and yet it has faced a series of legal and regulatory issues over the past six decades or so. Joining the show to talk about these issues and her recent article on the subject titled Hemp is on the Horizon, Will It Change the Game for Farm Country, is Christina Cook. Christina is a freelance writer and associate editor at Civil Eats, a daily online news source about the American food system. Later on the show, we will welcome John Bell, a hemp farmer in Kentucky, to offer his experience and perspective on hemp cultivation in the U.S. Christina, welcome to Eating Matters. Oh, thank you very much. 
Okay, so there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about hemp, this plant, and how it differs from marijuana. Um, so let's just start right at the beginning. Can you what? Can you tell us what what the difference is? Yes. Um, so hemp is a cousin of marijuana, um, and it looks very similar, but it's a different variety. And um, Whereas marijuana contains about 5 to 35% of um, the psychoactive chemical tetrahydrocannabinoid, or THC, um, hemp only has 0.3% of that. So um, it is, you cannot get high from hemp. Even if you smoked a whole field of it, you would come out with a headache. Um, <laughs> okay. So it's kind of like, you know, trying to eat a bunch of poppy seeds to get high on like heroin <laughs> is that a good is exactly. that a good analogy yeah. <laughs> okay that sounds like um not a whole lot of fun what are the you know uses for hemp can you tell us what some of those are yeah so hemp um there are a tremendous number of uses depending on different parts of different parts of the plant you can use for different things so like the seed the fiber and the flower all have a variety of uses the seed is um is used for food products it's a very it's very nutritious so it's got a balance of the omega fatty acids. It's rich in vitamins, uh, high in fiber, high in protein, and it's you usually find it. It can be in the form of uh, hemp seed oil, hemp milk, hemp tea, infusion drinks. Mm -hmm. um, it's also the seeds also used to produce body care products like lotions and cosmetics. Um, and then when you start talking about uh, the fiber uh, or the stalk, uh, the outer stalk is used to produce fabric and textiles like paper, clothing, carpeting. Um, it's a really strong fiber, so a lot of European companies are using it to produce things like car door panels. Oh. Um, it's strong and it's light, so um, it makes for more strong yet more fuel-efficient cars. Hmm. Um, and it also uh, people are using it as a building material. There's a thing called hempcrete, which is a mixture of um, a composite made of hemp and limestone. Okay. Limestone. Um, so it's being used to create buildings that it's an airtight and toxin-free and mold-resistant and fireproof material. Wow. Um, and then the the inner part of the stalk um, has a couple interesting properties. It's um, it's got some electrical conductivity properties. So there's a lot of research being done on perhaps finding ways to use it for batteries that might power electric cars or handheld electric devices. Um, and it's also extremely absorbent. So um, it's good for industrial applications like cleaning up after oil spills and stuff like that. Um, so aside from the, the seed and the fiber, there's also the flour, which um, is used to produce um, cannabis oil or CBD, which is a non-mind-altering compound that some clinical studies have shown that it can uh, be used to treat epilepsy. And then there are some other studies and a lot of anecdotal evidence. Most of these studies are on non-human subjects that show it can treat this whole uh, variety of other symptoms like anxiety and schizophrenia and heart disease. Um, but the FDA has not verified that, those uses yet. So, right. um, but, but it is on the market in the form of oils and tinctures and creams. Um, about the last seven years ago, the CBD market has really um, started growing quickly. Um, 
So, okay, so it sounds like it can be used for pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, from, you know, the food we eat to our cosmetics to uh, materials in our car and potentially, like, medical uses. What are some of the actual, in addition to, like, the wide ar- array of uses, um, the potential uses, what are the benefits to growing this plant over, um, you know, something else, say, like cotton, which is predominantly used to make clothes in this country? Yeah, so um, hemp has a, a much lighter impact on the environment than a lot of its, um, than cotton and um, other plants that are used to produce fiber. Um, it requires uh, minimal fertilizer and no pesticides and le- much less water than crops like cotton. Um and additionally, it's, it's a pretty high-yield crop. It has a short harvest cycle um, and suppresses weeds um, and has been found to enrich the soil as well. So um, it can help regenerate soil that's been depleted by other crops or things like mining. Wow. Okay, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, th- yeah. for that reason alone. Um, all right, so let's let's just get right down to it. Is it legal to grow hemp in this country right now? It is legal under certain circumstances. Um, so the 2014 Farm Bill had a provision in it that established um, a the ability to grow hemp for research purposes under um, this five-year agricultural pilot program. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has to be grown in conjunction with the university or a state department of agriculture. Um, And it also has to be allowed under the laws of the state. Um, So since that provision went into effect in 2014, 34 of the 50 states have passed uh, laws establishing such pilot programs. Okay, um, but outside of that, you're not allowed to just to just plant hemp seeds. So well, <laughs> it's I mean, still considered a controlled substance outside of that pilot program. Why? Um, because it is. Um, I mean, the other substances are considered um, drugs and mm-hmm. are you know mind altering and illegal, um, and hemp has just sort of. And it's hemp is a very old plant. It's been grown in our country for um, centuries, um, but or, but it's been grouped recently over the last century or so with marijuana, okay. um, and considered considered a drug, even though um, it cannot get you high. Okay, so it wasn't always illegal, but that's recently, you know, that's changed in the past hundred years, and currently it is still considered to be a controlled substance. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and then remind me, what regulatory body oversees the prevention or, or enforces the prevention of hemp cultivation? Is the USDA involved at all? No, the uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration oversees that. Oh, only there is no there is no kind of coordination with other. Um, agencies like the FDA or um, the USDA. I don't. I don't think so. Okay. Um, okay. So we. So there is this pilot program um, underway, and how? 
I mean, what states are are pretty are like leading the way in terms of so thirty four states you said voted to allow this pilot program um, to kind of come into existence. How many states are currently um, taking advantage of it? So thirty four states are, um, and Wisconsin was the most recent one to pass the laws to establish the pilot program that happened this past November. Mm-hmm. Um, Colorado is Colorado, Oregon, and Kentucky are kind of the, and, and North Dakota are the states that are taking the lead. Colorado had nine thousand seven hundred acres planted in twenty seventeen, and then. Oregon, Kentucky, North Dakota all had around 3,000, a little bit more than that. Um, so they're all um, very much interested as well. New York, New York is also being proactive. They've invested $10 million into their state's program, $5 million for research, and then another $5 million in processing equipment. Okay. Um, and and uh, how, I mean, just generally speaking, how is the pilot program going? Is it, is it, considered to be successful thus far, or have there been a lot of kind of setbacks? Um, I, well, I would say, I mean, the fact that, that so many states have come on board over the last few years is, is a big success. Um, and um, there's been a lot of research um, that's being done. A lot of states have um, a, a lot going on, like a lot of farmers are commissioning to grow or are applying to grow the plant mm-hmm. um, and are um, pretty, are, are learning a lot of things about the crop. And one of the challenges is that um, because it hasn't been, because hemp hasn't been grown in our country for 50 years, there's a lot of um, information that's lacking just because the seed genetics haven't, you know, we haven't been um, continuing to develop those. So farmers are having to start from scratch and getting the seeds adapted to their regions and their climates and what they're using the, the, the hemp for, what application. Um, so I think every year it's, they're learning more and more about how to success, successfully grow it in their state. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also, you know, lots of businesses have popped up. Um, trying to create markets for the domestically grown hemp. Um, and I, I talked with some of those, but they're, you know, in the, the food and the CBD areas especially. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of learning that's happening right now and markets being built. Um, and, yeah, I think the, the number of acres that have been planted doubled between 2016 and 2017. So that's um, a success. And more and more people are kind of getting on board and getting interested as, as more and more states um, what, what was allow the, the program. What was the goal? I should have I should have asked that <laughs> earlier. Okay. What is, you know, what does like success look like for this pilot program? Um, I think it's just to establish the viability of growing it and uh, processing it in this country. Okay. Um, and just trying to learn what they need to know to see if it's worth investing in more um, and just kind of how to do it. Okay. So even though you can't grow hemp in the States, can you, um, can you produce uh, hemp products here? Yes. So um, up until 2014, there was 
So, like, before 2014, no one in the United States was growing hemp, but we still had a $581 or $581 million market for hemp products. So we were um, importing either raw hemp um, or processed hemp. And then, um, so rather than growing it, we're importing it. And then there were a few manufacturers using it to create products. But we were mostly getting our hemp from places like China and Romania and Hungary and other European or European countries. Um, but since 2014, um, there have been a few businesses um, that have a few processors that have come on board and are, are trying to use uh, domestic hemp. Like I, I talked with Chad Rosen of Victory Hemp in. He's based in um, Henry County, Kentucky, and he's uh, Victory Hemp is a hemp food uh, producer, and they're sourcing all of their products through um, from American farmers, mm-hmm. um, which would not have been possible before 2014. And um, yeah, they've been. It's been challenging to try to build the market, but they've experienced a lot of success. They're on their, their products are now on the shelves of Kroger and Whole Foods. They've got hemp pasta. They're contracting with a company in North Carolina that's making hemp tempeh or mm-hmm. um, hempe mm-hmm. is what they call it. <laughs> and they just uh, purchased a processing facility in Vermont um, that's going to increase their capacity to process hemp seed by a factor of 20. So wow. they're seeing reason to uh, Expand. Expand. So that's good. I mean, um, and then did you say China is currently dominating the international market for hemp production? Is that right? Uh, Yes. Okay. Yes. So we're trying to get into that game. Maybe. Yes. (laughs) Maybe. Despite despite ourselves. Canada also has a strong program. Canada does? Of course, because they're yes. the best. Yes. <laughs> so, and then you, one of the things you, you wrote about in your article is that the in that you kind of have been touching on is the lack of sort of like the holes in the supply chain. Um, so, has this program um, been instrumental in kind of helping to um, like bridge the gap between produ- like producers, growers, and processors, um, or like and like where in the supply chain specifically does it kind of fall off? Um, well, um, yes, it is, it is helping to establish those relationships. I think there's still ways to go in, in getting the supply chain to be complete. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, um, the areas that's really struggling more than others is the fiber side of things because, um, hemp is a, um, is bulkier and tough tougher than most other types of fiber. And so traditional fiber machinery cannot handle it. Mm -hmm. So whereas you might be able to use like a different type of seed press to press hemp, like there's nothing that really exists that's able to process the fiber. So for that sector of the market to take off, um, American processors are going to have to invest, invest in commercial scale decortication equipment, which strips the fiber or the fiber from the stalk. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only a few of those around the world. There's, there's one being set up in North Carolina near me, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I don't think it's up and running yet. Um, it's supposed to be this year. Um, but there, so yeah, that people are working on the, the processing or the, 
the, the fiber side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, um, as I mentioned, like seed genetics is a big thing. A lot of research being done there. Um, and I, I know that also like farming techniques, Chad Rosen of Victory Hemp, um, who established that food processing facility in Kentucky, just talked about in coming online as a hemp processor, he's had to straddle many parts of the supply chain. So he's had to, he's found himself like having to work with farmers about how to, um, like what amendments to use with the soil, how to, how to plant, when to harvest, how to dry, um, and just prepare the hemp. And then he's had to kind of figure out how to process it with what types of machines. And then he created his own label in order to be able to sell it most effectively. So um, all these gaps are being bridged, but it's it's just a process that t- is taking time. Um, okay. Well, I with that, I just want to um, – we're going to have to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, but when we get back, we will um, continue our conversation. And we'll also welcome John Bell to the show, who is a hemp fa- uh, farmer, who's going to discuss his experience growing, um, growing the crop and what he sees as the future of this pilot program. Um, stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. On Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Civil Eats journalist Christina Cook about the cultivation of hemp and its journey towards legal production in the U.S. I'm now pleased to also welcome to the show John Bell, a hemp farmer extraordinaire based in Kentucky who is currently participating in the hemp pilot program authorized in the 2014 Farm Bill. John, welcome to the f- welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, okay, so before we kind of get into um, your specific experience with hemp cultivation, can you tell us a little bit more about your farming operation in general? Um, how big, you know, how big is the farm, and how long have you been uh, farming for? Sure. So I grew up on the farm in central Kentucky, bluegrass area. Mm-hmm. It's roughly 500 acres. The family farms, born and raised there. And uh, like most farms in central Kentucky, historically, it's either horse farms and or tobacco farms. Mm-hmm. So that, I grew up on a tobacco farm. We had um, cattle, um, hay, pasture, forages, and a little bit of grain, but our primary cash crop would have been tobacco as a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, basically what, what happened was as my sister and I were graduating from college and 
coming back to the farm, the same farm that, you know, supported one family, have kind of evolved to having to support three families. So we needed to, uh, you know, generate more income. And instead of expanding tobacco acreage and expanding cattle numbers and renting land, um, this this was at a time when uh, tobacco was still very profitable. But at the same time, if you're paying attention, the kind of the handwriting was on the wall. I probably shouldn't or didn't want to maybe philosophically, maybe economically make the decision to to further my career in tobacco production. So we, we looked to diversify and we started growing more crops and we started marketing in many different ways. Mm-hmm. That's evolved to now, you know, we sell roughly 50 different fruit and vegetable crops, beef, chicken, eggs, pork, lamb. Wow. Through farmer's market, CSA, a little bit of wholesale and some restaurant business. Uh, um, been certified organic since 2000. Huh. Um, so that, that's, that's the evolution of where we are now. Wow. It's Elmwood Stock Farm in Central Kentucky. Um, that is a whole lot to do. <laughs> that's a lot of well, big changes. Yeah, it, it has. It's, 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 we're still evolving. You know, every year we're, we're learning more and hopefully doing a better job in that. Yeah. Evolving both marketing, marketing venues and what we're growing. Now, is 500 so, acres considered to be like a small or medium-sized farm? How would you kind of categorize the size of so your in, Probably in central Kentucky, um, it, it's rolling land. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of individual oak or walnut trees, you know, a lot of cropland, rolling land, and, and, you know, a field of 10 or 20 acres that you can plow or till or crop mm-hmm. is a pretty good-sized field. So most there's a lot of five acre fields that okay. are crop, I mean crop areas five ten acres and that's between our, our our environment our humid summers and then the the size of our acres is kind of why tobacco flourish there so long them um, small a lot of good fertile soil but not laying in a manner that a lot of it should be tilled mm-hmm. historically um, we need a, a high value you know smaller acreage crop to make money so that tied with our humid falls to cure the crop is why Burley Tobacco did well there. So 500 acres of that, 200 acres max is tillable, 220 acres, something like that, we can actually till. The rest is permanent pasture. Hmm. And compared to our neighbors, it's probably uh, it's probably above average acres in one owned by one family anymore. So it's it's probably high side of the average. I okay. guess you could say it's definitely you, not the largest, but it's it's bigger than the average, I guess. And you own your own land. Is that is that unique? Um, Broadly, so speaking. the five hundred acres we probably own three fifty, and I rent the other one hundred and twenty five from my aunt, one hundred and fifty from my aunt, something like that. Okay. So okay. Um, it's in the family, but I don't necessarily own all of it. Right. And so that's very common. Almost everybody that that is actively farming in Kentucky owns a little bit and rents a lot. I think that's uh, something that a lot of people don't realize, that a lot of farmers rent the land that they work at, as opposed to own it. Um, yeah, at least. It's, it's pretty expensive to, to tie up all that land. And then the thing is, you know, one one farmer or one family might do a great job and accumulate a lot of land, but if he has more than one child to pass it on to, it quickly gets subdivided over a generation or two. Yeah. So it, there's a continual... People that are interested in farming, there's a continual try, try to accumulate the land, and then 
for those that don't choose to farm it, actively farm it, there's a continual, you know, division amongst siblings as it's inherited down through mm-hmm. generations. So it's kind of it's very interesting actually yeah kind no. of the circular process of ownership of the land definitely and kind of speaking of that uh, family history I understand you have a personal connection to growing hemp specifically in your family um, can you tell me uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so my my grandfather um, has a permit um, well did had a permit that to grow hemp during World War II. So he was, you know, in the in the 40s, 30s and 40s, it was not legal to grow hemp then either. But there was an exception or a made for for the war effort for the fiber, primarily for the fiber, for you know, you know, sails, parachutes, rope, whatever it, it was needed for. But um, so he um, has a permit, and he was an active hemp farmer for you know, I don't know if it was four or six years, but in the early 40s during the war. Wow. And, did, and then would, once the war was over, it was illegal again, you know, wow. no longer valid. I can imagine that takes a toll on, I mean, it's not like you can just snap your fingers and change and change what you're growing overnight. I imagine that was a uh, really difficult um, situation to have to pivot that quickly. Right. And, then, you know, that's that's kind of where we are now is um, we're, we're trying to grow with kind of the existing equipment we have. And on our farm, we're... we're both utilizing some of our vegetable equipment and some of our row crop equipment to try to to, to grow the crop, but um, not knowing from one year to the next, you know, both from a market point of view, but from a legal point of view, it's hard to invest too much time and definitely too much money in specific equipment for a crop until you're pretty comfortable that, you know, one, you're, it, it has a future, and two, it has a an economic future for you. Right. And then, okay, so so what made you decide to participate um, in this pilot program? Two or three reasons, probably. Um, again, we're we're very diverse, which is good and bad. It's part of it, the diversity is part of what makes organic farming work. The rotation of crop and livestock is a great fertility program great pest management program um so and then it's you know it's its own self-insurance program i mean if it, if we have a, a dry year i can irrigate my crops and mm-hmm. so they they usually do pretty well and have low disease pressure but my my livestock might be a little hungry a little bit you know on the hungry side looking for pasture we have a wet year I might be fighting a lot of blight or rot in my tomatoes for instance but my cattle are going to be fat and sassy so there's <laughs> there's a it's kind of a self-insuring thing, but the other side of being diverse is it's difficult. You don't really get to specialize or perfect any one thing, so to speak. So there's kind of a there's an inherent gain from the symbiosis of all the systems working together, but there's also there's only so many hours in the day and so many people on hand. You don't really get to specialize in tomato production alone. Right. So it has its pros and cons, but we've clearly chosen the diverse route. And so adding hemp is just one more diverse item. And to be honest with you, it, it it's a non-perishable crop. And a whole lot of what we grow, especially since we quit growing tobacco, a lot of our high-value cash crops are worth a lot today and they're rotten tomorrow. You know, they're perishable. Yeah. Um, some storage crops, you know, there's root crops. I mean, there's exceptions, but it's, for the most part, 
in the produce business, fruit and vegetables, you know, a lot of it is is valuable briefly, and, yep. and then it's expensive cover crop, you know. Yep. So hemp was an opportunity uh, for us to diversify into a potential high-value storable crop. So that was very appealing to us. Right. Um, that was one thing that tobacco did offer was, you know, it's stored for a while. You had to cure it. You had to keep it for a while to cure it. But at the same time, it was, you know, shelf-ready. It would sit there for a long time as well. So yeah. you kind of, you could have a reserve. Or you, you kind of had a little security there, so to speak, like, right. a, like a grain in storage. Right, right. No. And, then, and our livestock had that as well. But that was one appeal of the, of the hemp. And then also... With, I know it has a history in many states around the country, but it, it definitely has a history in Kentucky. And while economically and philosophically I was um, glad to get away from my dependency on tobacco, I, at the same time, you know, tobacco is, has a huge historical impact on our state and our culture and our area. And I mean, if, if you've read many of Wendell Berry's um, fiction Mm-hmm. Tobacco plays a big role in that. Just the the hours spent with your community in the stripping room, pulling the leaves off the stalk, or the harvesting process. And so, tobacco has a real heritage in our area. And you know, there's a certain amount of guilt leaving that because because it you know it put me through school or right. all the friends and people I've normally wouldn't know very well. I know pretty minute details of their life from all the hours we've worked shoulder to shoulder in tobacco and stuff. So there's a certain degree of, if I'm giving that up, this was an opportunity to maybe capture something else that while it hasn't, doesn't have a recent history in Kentucky, um, it still has a, it's a, has a historical impact in the state. So I kind of felt like that was a little bit of a nostalgia to it as well. And what kind of uh, varietal of hemp are you growing? Is it, uh, you know, are you specifically growing for um, human, you know, for for things that can be uh, eaten? uh, Or are you growing for fiber or um, just kind of generally growing, you know, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you got that. That was a terrible we 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 try we got approved in 14 2014 but it was so late and the seed was made available so late because of trying to import it at the last minute we never we never planted in 14 now a few farmers did and it was like in July which is pretty late and had some degree of a crop but i mean so 14 we didn't plant 15 2015 16 and 17 we planted and and have harvested 6 16 to 17, 2015 was a disaster and we didn't harvest the crop. So of those years, one year I planted a grain variety specifically, but the last two years I've planted a variety primarily for the leaf and bud material for CBD production. Oh. Um, and But there has been some grain with that, which is of value, and the grain is a value of either for for food or for pressing the oil out of. So this coming year, I actually have two different contracts, and I'll be growing both a grain and a CBD variety on two separate farms. And do you decide what the plan is? And do you, do you decide what to grow, or is this kind of dictated as a part of the pilot program? So as part of the pilot program, um, there's there's certain varieties that are um, 
known to have borderline high or you know, almost exceeding the C- T- um, THC level mm-hmm. that you know were forbidden from growing. There's some varieties that were okay a couple of years ago, but through testing, um, they've had too many close calls, so they're not allowed. And then there's a whole list of varieties that are approved for growing. So of that long list, I guess I'm through the program or I'm allowed to grow any of those varieties. And if I want to try a variety that's not on that list, I guess it's my understanding is it would be up to me to kind of get the in Kentucky, it's the Kentucky Department of Agriculture that my permit's with. Mm-hmm. And it would be up to me to probably provide them with the materials to try to convince them that this new variety is is safe to try. Um, but I haven't I haven't done that procedure myself. So what I have grown so far um, through the pilot program, I have worked with uh, some marketers who, who may or may not be growers themselves, but they have provided me with the, the seed that they wanted grown. And so, what do you mean by marketers? What marketers? Um, so, so like this year, I'll be growing for Victory Hemp, and so mm-hmm. um, they are selling products using. Hemp seed, and so that's I actually have you know a, an agreement that if I grow this variety for them, that they will buy the seed. Okay. And and um, so I, I, I'm counting on, or planning on, or have discussed with them. They're going to provide me with initial seed material. Got it. And then the other company I grew for, um, Atalo Industries, is they provided the seed in the, the previous two years. That's interesting. I would think that it would be, you know, that you would get um, at least some thing from the federal government or from the, you know, as a p- beneficiary of being in the pilot program to kind of test different varietals. But it sounds like what you're saying is it comes largely from industry. Well, it probably does. And if I, it's kind of the easier way or the low cost entry for me. Um, sure, I, I am sure that as a, participate in this pilot program if I wanted to go to the trouble of trying to to discover my own varieties and get them approved, they would be willing to work with me. Mm-hmm. But again, this is kind of the low-cost right. entry for me is that's one day, week, month, or year that I don't want to invest in researching a variety. So I have, I have worked with people who already have varieties they want grown. So mm-hmm. that's one less hurdle or investment that I have to make. But as sure going forward, if I knew that this was my future was in this, then yes, I'll probably be investigating my own varieties. So what was it, speaking of hurdles, what was it like to um, become a participant? I mean, was, was there uh, a lot of, you know, in, in applying for the program, was it like a big administrative burden for you to do so? Or was it fairly easy um, to be able to uh, get into this pilot? Um, it's, it's, it's not too difficult it, it specifically, but so Kentucky has, um, been kind of ahead of the game a little bit on this process. So they, they kind of had everything lined up. So when the federal legislation changed in 2014, they were ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then after, and they learned a whole lot, a whole lot in 2014, the department of ag did and how they want to do this. Um, and so it changed pretty, you know, some of the application process changed significantly and then little tweaks every year since then. But there's an application process that starts in the fall, actually. And, um, you know, it involves everything such as kind of what 
what I'm going to try to experiment with production-wise. You know, what what do I bring in the research of production? What am I bringing to the table? What do I plan on trying to do? Um, have I done it before? Do I have experience at it? What was my success there? And then, you know, the other side is there's background checks, and there's do you agree to use the, you know, these varieties that are approved or check with us if it's a different variety. And so there's a, there's a whole lot of the, of the permitting process. It's just making sure that everything is clear and transparent and above board because this is such a uh, still a touchy area and a gray area that we want to try to be as clear up front and forward and proactive in communicating with law enforcement about everything we're doing. To, so there's to try to give them as few questions or issues to deal with. Yeah. Try, try to make the process as smooth as possible. One of so the... that, that application process was in December, and we're, you know, and it's not, it's not a, we like this guy, yes, we like this guy, no. It's a, if, if everything, you know, if you fill out everything and there's no, no, you know, red flags don't fly up anywhere, then you're approved. I mean, basically, if, you know, if, if you meet all the criteria legally and you agree to everything they say that you need to do on a reporting basis, then you're approved. It's not a, they're not selectively approving. It's more of an application of if you'll follow these rules and meet these criteria, you can do it. Right. And, and so that's, that's, that's my experience with KDA. Now, I know that the universe, two or three of the universities have their own research projects going on, and I don't know if they have, uh, if it's any of it is outside of the university, if it's all entirely in-house. But I, I don't know that their process or when it begins, but my experiment, my experience with the permit permitting process with Kentucky Department of Ag has, has been like that. And so uh, if, once we're approved, then, um, you know, there's a deadline where we have to have our uh, imports seed import request in and paperwork in, but that's one thing I don't have to deal with since, you know, the people I'm growing for are providing the seed. Mm-hmm. But then there's a reporting. So when I plant, I have to report within so many days. Mm-hmm. And if it's a failure and I replant, I have to report that. Hmm. And then um, when I want to harvest, I have to let them know in the department um there's GPS coordinates of where all the fields are grown and the storage facilities. And then when I'm ready to harvest, um, there's a soil, there's not a soil, a, a plant sample taken randomly areas throughout the field. And those are tested for THC levels. <laughs> and as long as that is below the threshold, 0.03%, mm-hmm. then I can harvest it. But I also only have, from the time that sample's taken, I have to harvest it within 15 days. That's because as plants get older and mature, the THC levels can go up. So it's kind of they're checking it before you harvest it, and then you you have to harvest it within a reasonable amount of time of that being checked, or then they need to do another sample. Right. And so that is kind of, again, the proactive regulation of it. But it's through that random sampling that some varieties have, you know, three years of history of being completely below the threshold, and there's a a few varieties that are of concern were maybe out of, uh, you know, 20 tests or 100 tests, one of them has come back borderline or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a few varieties they call varieties of concern, and then there's a whole bunch of varieties that are known to be consistently below the threshold. 
So um, earlier in the show, Christina walked us through some of the barriers to um, growing hemp that she's learned about. And I'm, I'm wondering in your personal experience what some of those barriers have been for you personally. In terms Getting of the, the crop established. Okay. I mean, it's pretty simple. Once Hemp is a very vigorous growing crop, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of pests, so it can outcompete weeds. Wow. It's not very... It um, doesn't seem to have a whole lot of pest issues. It's a, it, it grows well. It seems to like our soil or our environment. But um, so when it, when everything works, it's just phenomenal how fast and well it grows. But it seems to be a little particular. At least it's frustrating in terms of I know how much we've grown in the past in this area and how little little knowledge that was carried down or passed on or whatever mm-hmm. now about it because it's still, um, we're still learning a whole lot and having a lot of failures and just getting the initial stand established, whether it's a, a moisture issue and a, a temperature issue or in a combination of those things. But in, so once, so we've had new, every crop that we've had that's been successful, like I said, the, 2015, it got flooded, and we replanted it, and it kind of got soaking rain, wet, flooded again, and it was a poor enough stand. We just disked it in and then no longer, you know, that that year was over. But the last two years, we've had good crops, but at the same time, time, right beside it, we've had really poor stands. And Some of it was a good crop on the first planting, and sometimes it was a good crop. We gave up on one, replanted it, and had a great crop the second time. So it's still... The establishment, from an agronomic point of view, the establishment, initial establishment is so important to success, and it's still very difficult. How optimistic? I still haven't figured out exactly Uh. what my targets are, exactly, (laughs) you know, the temp, the target temperature, the target seed depth, placement, spacing, and, you know, so it's still, it's... A work in progress. The initial establishment is still a little sketchy to me. How optimistic are you about your ability to continue to grow hemp and expanding your operation? To, to meet that I'm demand. sorry, I didn't catch... What was the oh. first part of the question? Oh. How optimistic are you about your ability to continue growing hemp and expanding and potentially expanding your operation to do so? Well, so... Um, I'm, from what experience I've had so far, I, um, Christina's article um, was was very optimistic in the possibility... I'm more optimistic in the possibility of legalization on a federal level than, mm-hmm. than I had been. And so that's, so that's very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from an agronomic point of view, I'm very optimistic because, you know, and, and I love the challenge. I mean, that's part of the fun is trying to figure out a new crop and make it work. And from an ep- economic point of view, um, I am optimistic because so far it's been profitable mm-hmm. in terms of supply and demand and, Long term, you know, I, I I don't know, but it's it's encouraging. Off, you know, the, the initial two crops I've harvested, I've been pleased with the yield and pleased with, you know, the marketing of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but once it's legal, you know, is it going to get flooded? Is it you know, is it going to be growing everywhere, or is it going to be a huge demand and there'll never be enough? So, 
so I'm cautiously optimistic from an economic point of view, but I'm I'm very optimistic from an agronomic point of view, even though at the moment that's the most frustrating part. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, like anything, it kind of takes time, right, to establish expertise. Right. And it sounds like um, you guys are start in, in many, many ways, you're starting from scratch. Um, which is unfortunate. Sure, exactly. <laughs> which is frustrating, but we are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, Christina, I want to I want to bring you back in um, before we wrap up. I've got a couple of questions, uh, you know, looking towards the future. So it sounds like there is, from a political standpoint, fairly broad uh, bipartisan support, at least right now. But I'm wondering what you kind of, if you look in your crystal ball, what you see as the future being, um, you know, for the continued cultivation or increased cultivation of this crop especially given the current administration? Um, and then also, what role you think, um, you know, it pushed back potentially um, some of these politicians will start to get from trade associations like National Cotton Council or International Cotton Association, for instance? Yeah. Um, so there's, um, as I mentioned earlier, currently a, a resolution um, that was introduced to the House called House Resolution 3530 or the Industrial Hemp Farming Act of 2017, which would um, remove hemp from the Controlled Substances Act and place it under the jurisdiction of the Food and Drug Administration, so it would be regulated like any other commodity crop, mm-hmm. um, which would be huge because it would, um, like, farmers are, you know, reluctant uh, to plant a whole lot of hemp um, and to really dive in. Um, and processors are reluctant to take it on as a major thing that they're doing um, just because it's from year to year. They don't know if it'll um, be legal, if, if the pilot program will continue. So that would be huge, and a lot of people see getting this resolution passed as a key to having the industry actually take off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like the, the bill enjoys uh, bipartisan support. Um, there are... Currently, 43 co-sponsors on it. Wow. Um, That's it's, it's with the House Judiciary Committee, um, and 25 of those are Democrat, 18 are Republican. Um, and the most recent people to sign on, it just happened. Uh, there's one this month and one last month, a, a Democrat and a Republican from California. Um, I mean, you just don't hear about so, that anymore. <laughs> Excuse me? You just don't hear about that kind of bipartisan support anymore. My God. I know. I know. I mean, a lot of Democrats support it. Mitch McConnell yeah. um, is a huge supporter of Kentucky. him um, yeah. for what it could do economically for Kentucky. Um, so, yeah. So, so that's the good. next farm. Oh, go ahead. Oh, so yeah. So that's, <laughs> that seems positive. But I anticipate there being pushback from trade associations who might have an effect on um, you know, how kind of politicians vote or is that kind of seen as like a non-issue? Because in my mind, I'm thinking like big cotton, you know, trade associations might might not be as enthusiastic about um, this, you know, burgeoning industry. Right. Yeah. And I, I know that traditionally hemp, like uh, decades ago, there were lobbies against it from competing industries. I don't know how much of that is going on right now. Yeah. Um, so probably a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and um, throw a number out there. And that number is a lot, <laughs> not to <right>. be <laughs> pessimistic, but you know, it's yeah. Whatever. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about trade associations. I know that the, the DEA, um, 
does not support pulling hemp off the Controlled Substances Act in part because they they just envision farmers planting marijuana within their hemp fields and it being hard for them to enforce drug laws. Um, that's very unlikely to happen given that the cross-pollination between the two plants would diminish the um, potency of the marijuana yeah. and and could potentially put a farmer out of business if they were to do that. Doesn't seem um, like a whole lot of incentive but, you know, to do with, that. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but the Department of Justice is under sessions, is looking to aggressively enforce drug laws, and the USDA undersecretary, Greg Ebach, has come out saying he doesn't necessarily think the fairly narrow regulations on hemp should be broadened. Um, so there's a li- there's some opposition from the, the executive branch, but but over in Congress, there's pretty bipartisan support. So mm-hmm. um, most of the hemp advocates that I spoke with see a path, uh, a path to passage and are pretty optimistic um, and just see education as the primary thing standing in the way of um, getting the bill passed. They say if they have a few minutes and, and can talk with um, legislators about, you know, making that distinguishing, distinguishing between marijuana and hemp and talking about the benefits of hemp, both from an environment and an economic perspective that most people um, tend Irrational. to come over to their side. Yeah. What about, and I know this is probably, we, we have to, um, you know, wrap up and I still have like a thousand questions, but, um, and this is probably a much longer conversation, but one of the things that I wonder about is the anticipated actions um, from, you know, quote unquote, big ag, right? With, with increased cultivation, kind of what, what effect would this have on industry and what would the, um, industry's interest in this crop be? Yes. So currently hemp is being grown primarily by small and medium sized farmers. Um, big ag hasn't jumped in in part because the markets aren't quite there yet. And they're so focused on what they're already doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of people anticipate that um, if um, hemp falls off the Controlled Substances Act and um, just given its potential profitability, that big ag will get involved. So um, a lot of people who advocate for kind of who like hemp for its regenerative qualities and the fact that it can make, you know, a, a farmer's rotation more diverse are advocating to kind of get ahead of that and really start developing the crop um, in sustainable ways mm-hmm. um, before big ag um, potentially gets involved. They A lot of people see it as inevitable for them, for big ag to eventually kind of get in the market um, once it's there. Um, but also it would be adding another crop to like the corn soil rotation. So anytime you add a, a additional crop to that. It's, it is beneficial. <laughs> right. There are some um, benefits to it. So what can, yeah. what can listeners do to support the growers like John, um, who are, you know, small mid-sized farmers who are currently really working to, uh, you know, prove the success of this crop? Um, well, I would say, you know, you know, looking for hemp products, purchasing hemp products to just sort of help build that demand. Um, also, that the Hemp Industries Association is a, it's a decades-old um, industrial hemp trade group, and they're involved in advocating for hemp in 
and developing committees and task forces to face various issues the industry is facing, trying to talk with legislators to, about the benefits of the crop. So finding a way to connect with the HIA um, is good and contacting lawmakers and just talking about, you know, the benefits of the crop and why they would want it in their state be the the routes to go. Great. Okay. Last, last, final question, I promise. Um, we, of course, 20, 2014 was the last time we saw big changes to um, the hemp industry. And I'm wondering with the impending uh, reauthorization of the 2018 farm bill, what can we expect um, for hemp cultivation? Well, the 2014 farm bill established a five-year pilot program, but there's no language in it that talk discussing an expiration date. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's likely that the upcoming reauthorization of the farm bill would, would continue the pilot research program, but um, it would still be a pilot research program. Um, Hemp would still be considered a controlled substance outside of that. So there would still be the limits. Um, Like it wouldn't, it it would still be, um, kind of in the same state it is today where people are wary of completely jumping in. So, um, is that yeah, likely the, the, is that if the legislation oh, doesn't pass though, will that change? If, will that change if the legislation that's currently, um, making its way through Congress, uh, pass to remove it from the controlled substances act? Um, yes, I think then it would be kind of permanently, um, legal to grow hemp for for anybody rather than through the pilot program specifically. Okay. So it seems like that's the first step. Right. (laughs) That's what the people that I talk to who are advocating for hemp or experimenting with hemp um, see this changing the law rather than kind of getting it renewed in the farm bill as the key to opening everything up. Okay. All right. Well, lots, lots of great things to fight for. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, but I want to thank uh, both of you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about this topic. Yes, you're thank welcome. You for Thanks for having bringing me. it up. <laughs> okay, so um, for more on what Christina has written, go to christinacook.com, and you can find her on Twitter at xtinacook. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, um, as well to our engineer. Uh, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.